Good evening. It's good to be here to worship together. Tonight is the deadline to sign up for the April 14th, 15th, and 16th Mexico trip. Please sign up at the youth information table in the foyer. And then this Sunday, I believe, is, well, the time change, so make sure you move your clocks up. Um, I explained Sunday, normally at Calvary Costa Mesa they don't do it, but there are a few reasons why it's better for us to do it. Uh, mainly because of people who come to first service because they have to go to work afterwards. So besides that, in all the years I was at Calvary, I never saw people get it straight anyhow. I thought it was pretty simple, but we still got 100 calls asking people moved their clock the wrong direction and made them two hours off. And so <laughs> we'll just do what they tell you to do in the newspapers. Um, Villa Valencia, I think, is this Sunday, if I remember correctly. Also, this Sunday morning, we'll be having communion during our morning service. Um, those of you Wednesday night loyalists get it all the, you know, regularly on Wednesday night, but every once in a while I like to do it on Sunday morning for people who can't make it out at night. So I can't remember if there's anything else. Am I missing any announcements? I guess not. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. On our journey through the Bible, we've finished Leviticus and we've just taken a few weeks to go through the book of Hebrews because of its tie-in with the passages that we've already studied in the Old Testament and the passages that we are about to study. And so I thought it would be a nice change of pace as well. We Tonight we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. If we make it to 6... It is perhaps the most difficult chapter in the Bible, so get yourself psyched up as we're going through five. Uh, chapter six is a real doozy. <laughs> Hebrews chapter five. The author of Hebrews, who I believe to be Paul, is drawing a picture of Jesus Christ, and as he shows his superiority to angels, his superiority to Moses, his superiority to Joshua, to Aaron, he's now going through the section, these next several chapters, where he's emphasizing quite a bit the, the priestly role of Jesus Christ. And rich passage and important for us, chapter 4 left off with that great verse that says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Truly, that is the point to us of Jesus Christ being our great high priest, is that he has gone into the Holy of Holies and purchased our ability to go in boldly before the throne of grace. It wouldn't be a throne of grace had he not done what he did. There would be no way. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, apart from what Jesus had done, it would be like those people on Indiana Jones we'd be melting because there's no way you can approach the presence of God except for his grace. And the path to that grace was paved by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Now, beginning in chapter five, it says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. The point here is that a priest, from what they were used to, the Aaronic priesthood, said it's so important that those priests be taken from among men. That is, that they can relate to the people they represent. In the Aaronic priesthood, obviously, they would have to be a person. And that's why Jesus Christ had to become a man. Because if he was going to represent us to God, he needed to, to actually be able to represent us. And the only way to do that is to be one of us. And so, as it says here that that they're appointed, um, taken from among men, appointed for men and things pertaining to God. And so the idea of a priest is someone who, from among men, is able to represent the people because he's one of the people and represent them before God. 
that priestly role primarily, well, you have three major roles, and we'll see this later on, and especially when we study Melchizedek, but you have prophets. Those are people who basically represent God to the people, speak for God to the people. You have priests, and the priests go the opposite direction, represent the people to God. And then you have kings, and those are the ones who who legislated over the people, who supervised them in that position of political leadership. We have in Jesus Christ the only real example of someone who is a prophet, priest, and king all rolled up into one. Priests could also be prophets, but priests couldn't be kings. Prophets could be kings, but they couldn't be um, priests as well. And so he's kind of drawing the, some of the job requirements for a priest here in order to make this distinction. And again, they're appointed in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this is an emphasis from the priest standpoint and in terms of making that daily mediation that we need because of our sins. It doesn't say just for sin. It's not just Jesus going in once and and representing us, but it's sins, it's all that we do, that Jesus Christ is constantly interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And that's what the priests would have to do in the Aaronic priesthood, come again and again and again because the people continued to sin. And again, it says, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Now, it's hard to understand why God could somehow have more compassion. And it may not be that because Jesus became a man, he can feel for us that much more. But it at the very least means that we know that he can feel for us because he became one of us. Now, I happen to think that he experienced, and and later on in this chapter, as we discussed on Sunday morning, something happened through Jesus Christ going through this experience that more prepared him, more equipped him for the job that he needed to do in terms of redeeming us. And I don't profess to understand completely what that is. But somehow Jesus learned obedience, it says. And so Jesus himself can feel everything that we feel because as we saw in chapter four, he's been tempted in everything as we are. He is someone who has experienced it. He's been there. And so compassion just means to feel with. And he is able to feel it. Now, he he never sinned. The one thing he doesn't know what it feels like is what it feels like to sin. But he knows what it feels like to be tempted. He knows what it feels like to be hurt. And he feels it with us. He is that kind of a high priest. And that was the nature of the priest. The priest, their job was to represent the people and relate to them in such an intimate way that they were able to go before God on behalf of, of those, uh, the people. And so again, the emphasis here for Jesus is that he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Ignorant, well, Jesus, as he hung on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So ignorant and wandering off astray, that's a pretty good description of us. And Jesus knows how we feel. He understands he's compassionate toward us. He looks on the multitudes, as it says when he looked at Jerusalem, and and had compassion for them and wept over them. And so, again, That was the job of the high priest. Well, we also, the Bible lets us know that we are called the kingdom of priests, that we, God considers all of us, we call it the universal priesthood of the believers. A priest is not just someone that wears a different kind of collar or a different robe. A priest is anyone who is given the role of representing people before God. And because of what Jesus did for us, if we're Christians... We can represent him in gifts and prayers and and offerings. And in the same way that a priest does, in the same way that he did it ultimately, we as well need to represent each other before God, interceding for our brothers and sisters. And when we do, it's important that we not do it in a condescending sort of way, 
in a way that says, God, I pray for this person. I don't know how they could do what they're doing. I don't know what they're thinking. They're stupid. They're ridiculous. They're awful. They're sinful. God, please help them to repent. That's not the spirit of our high priest. And that's not the the spirit of what a priest was supposed to be anyway. It's a spirit of compassion. It's a spirit of understanding that there's ignorance that's involved. And ignorance doesn't just mean you don't know. Um, Ignorance, you know the word ignore. Sometimes ignorance is you just don't, for whatever reason, you don't think about it, you don't want to think about it, but you're not acting on the basis of that which you know. But understanding, as Jesus did, as he looked at those who killed him, if you really knew what you were doing, you wouldn't do this. Every sin we commit, if we really understood what we were doing to the Lord, if we really understood what we were doing to ourselves, we wouldn't do it. And so the priest understands that weakness, understands that tendency that we have to go astray, and he also himself is subject to weakness. Now, Jesus, as our high priest, was never subject to sin. And there's a big theological debate as to whether Jesus actually could have sinned. When he was tempted, was it even possible for him to violate that which, as God, he was supposed to do? And he hasn't sinned. It says that he was tempted in all manners we are, yet without sin. So I think it's sort of a silly debate People have written entire books on it as to whether it was possible for Jesus to have sinned. I know from my perspective, it's hard to imagine that it would have been actual temptation if it was impossible for him to do it. It seems like right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, when they were given the opportunity to either obey or not obey, it was that that made the difference. People who, if, if people didn't have the opportunity to sin, then what's even temptation? I, I find that, you know, there are certain sins that I'm tempted to commit, but there are other sins I'm absolutely not tempted to commit, even though I'm, they sound good to do them. Like, for instance, to, to jump off a mountain and go flying around in my flesh, I'm really not even tempted to do it. Oh, you have those weird dreams once in a while where you do it, but I, it's really not that tempting. It's not tempting for me to leave the ministry and go play in the NBA, I just realized I, I can't, that's not realistic. I mean, I, I suppose you could put me and two other guys with Kobe and Shaq, we'd still be a decent team. But, you know, basically, you're not really tempted unless it's possible for you to do it. And so I tend to think that Jesus could have. Now, what if he had? Would that make him not God? Or would it make what he did right because he did it and therefore it's right? Uh, fun thoughts, but. We'll get sidetracked on them. The whole point is, for the priest, in, in the case of, of the Aaronic priesthood, they were subject to weakness. That's why they had to come and sacrifice themselves for themselves. Aaron and his sons had to sacrifice for themselves before they ever sacrificed for the people. And so, and that's why he says, since he's subject to weakness, because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices. So, the basic requirement for a priest. He needs to be compassionate. He needs to be one of the people, relate to the people. He needs to make sure that he deals with his own sin in terms of most priests. This wouldn't apply to Jesus because he didn't have any. Although he gave himself, he laid himself on the line for it. But also the priest has to be someone who's assigned that role. You don't take this role upon yourself. In their case, in the Levitical priesthood, you needed to be of the tribe of Levi. And then you had to be in the right family if you were going to be the chief priest. So, but it says, um, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, So also Christ didn't glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we've seen this um, phrase already. It's a quote from Psalm 2, where God is saying to Jesus in, in in a prophetic sense, thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. 
And back in, it was in, used in Hebrews chapter 1 to make the argument that Jesus was God himself because, and superior to angels because he said, unto which the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So here he brings it up again. Now, without getting, we've spent a little time, I think, discussing it before. One thing that I'd like to point out to you is that, and often we have this issue of, this day have I begotten you? And to us, begotten, to beget something, means to have them. And you think, wow, this is a quote from Psalm 2 that's talking about the day that the Father birthed the Son, that the Father, you know, um, created the Son, or if he's not created, that somehow he was born out at some point. Well, that's not what it's saying at all. And don't let the cultists get you tangled up with this concept of begotten. We find out over in Revelation chapter 1, among other places, that, that Jesus Christ is the first begotten of the dead. And Jesus is begotten in the sense that he was resurrected. And in every passage that refers to what he, you know, his being begotten, it's always in the context of the resurrection in one way or another. And, and it, it, for instance, in, there in Psalm 2, where he says, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee? And then he says, Ask of me, and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance, and so on. It's referring to future times. And so that isn't, that isn't just, uh, you know, oh, he's begotten, therefore he's a son, therefore he can't be equal. Not at all. It's referring, in general, when it says, says that Jesus is begotten, it's referring to the fact that he's raised from the dead. Now, a verse that probably all of you have memorized, John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, when did God give his son? Is that talking about the incarnation? Is that talking about when he came to earth? Well, certainly not. Because if, if it says that, that God gave his only son, when he gave him was when he died. And whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. It's referring to a guarantee of our resurrection. John 3.16 is prophetic. Jesus speaking at the time, looking forward to that day when, as it says here, he would be the first begotten of the dead. He would be the first one to rise from the dead in that sense. And so, it, but the point here in this passage is Jesus didn't take upon himself. He didn't just go, okay, I'm a priest and anoint himself. As he also says in another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This brings up a subject that we won't go into detail tonight because in chapter 7 there's an extensive passage on Melchizedek. But what he's saying here is to those people who are saying, okay, so you have to be assigned to the job of being a priest. It's not just enough to be compassionate. It's not just enough to, to have those qualities where you're dealing with your own sin first. You're, you're, you don't have a sin problem yourself in the case of Jesus because of not committing them in the case of the priest because they just sacrificed for them. But not only that, you know, you need to have this assigned. And the Jews reading this would have said, well, wait a minute. Gee, how can you talk about Jesus being a priest? How can he be a high priest? He's not of the family of Aaron. He's not a Levite. Jesus was of the tribe of what? Judah. So how can you have a priest that's not a Levite? Unheard of to them, not completely unheard of. Because we have this story of Melchizedek, who was a priest long before. It was in the time of Abraham, Genesis chapter 14. It was long before the Levites were ever born. And so he'll go on later to, to describe that in a little more detail, but he's saying that even, you know, even mentioning, quoting in the Psalms, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110. The other place, by the way, besides Genesis 14 and in the book of Hebrews where Melchizedek is discussed. And in that case, it's God prophesying of Jesus ahead of time and saying, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, when we get to chapter 7, we'll get into Melchizedek more than you'll ever want to. So we'll just keep moving. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now describing as we 
covered this passage last Sunday morning, describing that priestly work of Jesus Christ when he related so to the people that he struggled and battled and, and, and sweat drops of blood and, and went through all of this suffering to represent us before God, before he would give his life. And again, it says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I said Sunday, I don't know completely what that means. I have not read. And in fact, most commentaries, when they get to this passage, they say, this is a mystery. We don't know what this means. And, but what we do know, the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make, is that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who understands and who needed to suffer benefited from that. Everything that he did while on this earth was preparing him and equipping him for that which he would do so that then it says, he, having been perfected or matured or completed, he became the author of eternal salvation. And therefore, by extension, we understand that the pain, the suffering, the hurt that we go through in this life, there's a point to it. There's a purpose to it. And, and we went over and we talked about First Peter where it talks about us us uh, sharing, partaking in the sufferings of Jesus and so on. But I love this passage even though I don't understand it. And if you, didn't, if you weren't here Sunday, you might want to get the tape because it is a great passage. And so it says, He was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So he starts to... And Paul here, I think, is excited to share with them some amazing truth about Melchizedek. But he realizes at the point, you guys, I'm losing you completely. He says, I'd like to talk to you more about Melchizedek, but you're dull of hearing. You have an ear problem. And, and so right now, we just can't go into it. And that's kind of what I'm telling you, too. We just, you guys aren't ready to handle it. Next week, you'll be ready. Because it's kind of funny, he goes through Psalm, the chapter 6, the most difficult passage of scripture probably to understand, after saying you can't handle Melchizedek, and then he goes, well, you're so confused now, I'm just going to go ahead and write a chapter on Melchizedek too. And that's what he does in chapter 7. But at this point, he's saying that you guys aren't quite ready for this stuff yet. And then he'll go on to elucidate a little bit more. It does make me think oftentimes... How often, how many times am I dull of hearing? How many times do I listen to a, a Bible study? Or how many times do I read the Word of God or do I read a Christian book or something like that? And I just say, you know, I, I become like a critic. That was, eh, was a seven. You know, that was, that's pretty good. Oh, that's terrible. And I used to all the time, because I'm a fast reader, I used to read all the books that Calvary Distribution would sell to all the Calvary bookstores. So I read lots of books. And you read the book, and, I, and then they want you to rate it in all these areas. And I always felt kind of bad, because sometimes I'd think a book was great. And then later, I'd read it again and go, I can't believe I thought this was a great book. Other books, I'd read them, and I'd say, oh, this is, there's nothing here worthwhile. And then I'd read it a year later and go, how, how could I have missed this? And I'm convinced a lot of times the problem with how we respond to what is dished out to us has more to do with who we are and where we are at the time. Sometimes we're just not ready to hear it. Sometimes you might think that I'm teaching a really bad Bible study, but it might just be your ears at that point. <laughs> so get the tape and listen to it later. Maybe you'll be ready for it. I don't know. But I'm not picking on you. I, I, I do the exact same thing. There are some times when worship is just awesome, and there are other times when worship is, seems kind of flat, and I think a lot of times it has nothing to do with who was leading worship or what songs we sang or anything like that. Sometimes it has to do with our hearts being prepared, and so um, he's kind of saying to them, I don't think you guys are ready for this right now, so let's just forget all about Melchizedek for a chapter, and then I'm going to just... It's like he's excited, and I think this... Chapter 7, as he talks about Melchizedek and the priesthood, is really an exciting part of Scripture. It's one of those mysteries that is unfolded for us and explained to us here in Hebrews that if we didn't have Hebrews, um, it would be just a strange story. And so I can see why he was excited about it because God had given him this insight about it. 
But then he was just going, oh man, this is too complicated for you. And so then he kind of takes a little stab at him. He says, so for, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he kind of takes a shot at him. Basically what he's saying is, you guys need to grow up. You're sitting here, and I'm having to explain some things to you. And remember, again, throw it back into the context of the book. These are Jewish Christians who knew the law, who studied the Old Testament, who had come to see Jesus Christ as their Messiah, accepted him as their Messiah. And yet, what are they doing? Like babies, they're, instead of growing and, and moving on and studying the word, he could see them glazing over when he would get into more sophisticated theology because they just wanted the milk. What they were doing, they were returning to the law. They were deciding that they preferred that to what, you know, to what Jesus Christ had to offer for them. And so, as he's saying, you guys are like babies. It's sort of like, and you know, some of you gals probably had Barbie dolls when you were kids. And you know, you threw them around, you, didn't, you don't take that great care of Barbie dolls. And then years later, you find out what your Barbie dolls are worth now. And you go, you see people selling them on eBay for thousands of dollars. And if you're lucky, you have your Barbie dolls. But probably like most people, and this is why Barbie dolls are so expensive on eBay, is because people who used to have Barbie dolls hear that they're getting more valuable and they're going, man, I should have kept my Barbie dolls, but I might as well just buy a few now. So you have adults buying Barbie dolls. Why? Because they think it's going to end up being worth more. They don't buy them because they want to play with them. I mean, I had at Calvary High School, the computer teacher was buying dolls on eBay. And I, I'm just going, not for his kids. He wouldn't let his kids touch them. It was, he thought it was a good investment. I don't think it worked out that way so far. But I can understand someone buying Barbie dolls because they think they're going to make money off of them. But what if you bought them and there you were, you're a grown woman, you have kids and everything. And every day when the family leaves the house, you're dressing up Barbie. You're getting out your sewing machine and making new little clothes for Barbie. And you have your Barbie and Skipper and Ken and everybody. And they're talking to each other. And you've got the dream house. And you're, how silly would that be? I mean, it would be, come on. It's okay for kids, but grow up a little bit. Now, you might get down in the, on the floor with a little kid and play dolls with them, just like for guys. And I don't want to be sexist about this, but I never played with a Barbie doll. I think I blew him up a couple times. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know guys have their little army men or their little G.I. Joes. And, and it was okay when you were a kid. But there's something weird if I said, you know, oh, got a bunch of the guys together from the church and said, hey, today everybody come over to my house and bring your G.I. Joes and your army men and we're going to dig trenches and we're going to have a big battle. And you'd, you'd say, Dave, you've gone over the edge. This is, this is weird. And yet, spiritually, when we begin to fall back to a place where we used to be, trying to reclaim some of the glory of what used to be, it's already passed. Get over it. I had a thing where one of my favorite TV shows growing up was The Rifleman. And Lucas McCain had one of those cool rifles that had the round thing for a cocking, for a cocking mechanism. And so he'd spin the gun around and cock it. If you're old enough, you remember that. It was the coolest thing. You know, back when TV shows, the hero would just gun everyone down at the end. You know, it's not politically correct, but it was cool. And they made a company called Hubley made a replica of Lucas McCain's rifle. And it was called the Flip Special. And I remember I had a couple friends that had them. I always wanted one. I never got one for Christmas. I, I was thinking about it a couple years ago. Can I never got that, you know, rifleman rifle. I wonder if they have them on eBay. And so I'm looking and yeah, they do. Before I know it, I'm bidding $250 on a toy rifle. Thankfully, somebody outbid me and I came to my senses. But 
what would I do with a plastic gun nowadays? But in the same way, when those who are supposed to be growing in the Lord, it's a point where you ought to be discovering truth and sharing it with other people. But instead, you sit here and you just want somebody to pour formula into you. You just need, the only teaching that you can get is what's shoved down your throat. And at some point, what he's saying here is, you need to grow up and do this for yourself. If the only time you study the Bible is when you go to church, you're not going to be getting much. And certainly, you're not going to be getting enough that you're able to share it with others. We all need to spend time in the Word of God, studying God's Word. And especially as we get older, we need to grow up. We need to not flirt with things from our past. We need to not be tempted to go back into something that meant something to us a long, long time ago. But we need to move forward. And for us to fall back into the sins of our youth, for you see guys who go, it seems like it's more guys than women, but I, women do it too, I suppose, have this midlife crisis where all of a sudden you see some old guy and he's, and he's trying to wear young clothes and be cool. And, you know, for guys, it usually means a whole bunch of, let me check here. Okay, I don't see, you know, all these gold chains and things like that. And, you, and the, you know, the hair's maybe getting a little longer and a little more elaborate comb-over deal going. And, and you know, you got to have the sports car. And you see these guys, you know, big old guys trying to get into a little, they buy like a Mazda Miata and they can't even hardly get into it. Or they buy some little sports car and you see them injuring themselves just trying to get in because it's like, oh, I want to, I want what I wish I had had when I was a kid, but I never had it. And spiritually, there are people who do that. They think, oh, the good old days, that's where I want to be. And they, they try to live a life that is caught up with and really consumed with things that they should have grown out of already. And we're all susceptible to that, and we need to be careful. I don't want to return to any time of glory of my past. You know, I don't want, I went to Calvary when it was a tent. I know what it was like. It wasn't that great. It was great. It was fun. It was interesting. But I wouldn't want to go back to that smelly tent with those heaters burning and sitting on the floor and dirty people coming up to you and, and saying weird things because they're so, heads are fried on drugs. I, I don't look back on those days and say, oh man, those are the good old days. If you think they were the good old days, you probably weren't there. There were good things about it, but the good old days with Jesus Christ, it's right now. There is more happening right now. As the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared with people, as the church grows, as ministry expands, there's way more happening now. And I believe the better days are the days that are ahead. You know, and, and I get excited to see what's happening now. I don't want to go back. I don't want to look backwards. And I sure don't want to end up playing with toys that were things of my youth. I sure don't want to get caught up with trying to somehow rediscover something that I think I missed. And I certainly want to be one who says, I'm ready for everything that God wants me to have. I want to grow spiritually. If you're not growing, you're dying. If you're not growing closer to the Lord, if you can't look back and say, over the last six months, I've really learned a lot from God, then you're in big trouble because if you haven't grown in the last six months, you're, you're deteriorating. You can't just stay in the same spot. And so here it's, he's going, look, you guys, by this time you ought to be teachers. But instead, I'm trying to give you milk. Paul told, and by the way, this is one of the passages, there are so many of them through the book of Hebrews, you'll see, but one of the passages that lines up so closely with what Paul says in other books, another reason why I believe that Paul wrote it, but over in 1 Corinthians, he talks to them about the same thing and about milk and being babies and, and that kind of thing. Basically, he's just saying, don't be a baby, live your life. Now, life for me was easier when I was a new Christian. I remember when I accepted the Lord, my life was changing so radically and God was speaking to me so powerfully that it was easy. It was not a struggle really for me at first, but as I grew in the Lord, it became harder and today in some ways probably harder than it's ever been and that's part of growing up. When you're a kid laying in a, in a stroller or a playpen, how hard is life? Make a little noise? The people guess what you want. They try different things until they hit it. If you're 30 and you're doing that, that's kind of sad. 
It's too bad. And, and so as we grow, it does become more difficult because we're expected to take care of ourselves. We're expected to be sort of self-sufficient. And that's what faith is all about, that as you grow in the Lord, it can become tougher because God will have you do something with your eyes closed that you used to do with your eyes open. But it shows, it demonstrates maturity. It demonstrates mastery, like someone who learns to, to disassemble and assemble a rifle, and then they do it blindfolded or in the dark. Someone who learns to type, and then they have to type with their eyes closed or with, the, with little caps over the keyboard. Because you find out how much you know when you can do it without looking. When you can do it without, you know, you watch good musicians. They don't watch the keys. They don't look at the strings. They just, they know it. It's second nature. And so the life that we're expected to live by God, the life of maturity, sometimes a life with more difficulty, sometimes a life with less clarity than the simple black and white world that you live in when you're a baby. But at the same time, that's a part of growing up. And so Paul's just exhorting them and saying, you guys need to keep moving. You're running the risk, and he goes into chapter six of this in great detail. If you're not progressing, you run the risk of falling back, falling down, falling away. And so he's pointing out the thing that he's concerned about before he introduces that subject to a greater extent in chapter six, and just saying, the only way to know that you're not falling backwards is to keep moving forwards. So he says, therefore, chapter six, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection or maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he here gives us a little outline and says, look, there are certain foundational, fundamental truths of the, of the scriptures that everyone ought to know. And let's not have to keep reminding you of all of these basic things. You've all, you've been Christians, you're, you're performing the basic, you know, you understand basic doctrine, but there are, there's more that God wants to do in your life. And it's possible if you just stay in a very simplistic relationship that you could be jeopardizing your own progress. Now, I won't go into it, I'm tempted, but if you look at what he says in terms of the elementary principles, he gives a pretty good outline of basic Christianity and basic doctrine. Repentance from dead works, that's referring to just repenting, but also, especially in relationship to the law, understanding that the old covenant, that living by rules, that living by churchianity, living by just trying to be religious, that doesn't cut it, that's dead. And faith toward God, putting your faith in him and walking by faith, living in a way that, that you don't have to see it in order to do it. Because if you've heard it and he's told you, you obey it. And then of the doctrine of baptisms, perhaps a reference to water baptism as well as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, as well as being baptized by the Spirit into the body, basically three New Testament baptisms. Well, there's also baptism of suffering and there are some others as well. But these works were baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Spirit into the body, and other things. He's going, and that, again, this is a good outline for some basic doctrine, but he's going, you ought to know this stuff. You ought to have it down. Laying on of hands, referring to either, and by the way, it's another possibility that the baptisms is referring to Old Testament teachings and some of the baptisms that they had. Laying on of hands, either a reference to repenting of your sins as they would put their hands on the head of the animal that would be sacrificed, or in a New Testament context, they had hands laid on them to pray for them, and spiritual gifts were kind of dispersed, and callings and jobs were, you know, the, by the laying on of hands of the Presbyterian. So perhaps a reference to um, spiritual gifts and understanding what your role is serving in the body. The resurrection of the dead, basically future things and eternal judgment. So referring to eschatology, future things, either what's happening in heaven or what's going to happen on earth and ultimately in hell. He's saying, here's a good, these six things, here's a little outline of basic doctrine. And he's going, you ought to have this stuff down. 
Now, a challenge to you, if one of those areas seems like, I don't even know what you're talking about there. Well, there's something for you to start to study. There's something for you to seek out a little bit. But he's moving past it, and he says we're going to move past it if God allows us, and he will. Now, we have the passage of Scripture that is one of the biggest problems in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, this passage from verse 4 through verses 7 or 8, something like that, one of the most, well, for one thing, this is a passage of scripture that I've seen do great damage to people. People who are just absolutely flabbergasted reading this passage or having someone preaching on it, and they're absolutely convinced that they've lost their salvation, committed the unpardonable sin, you know, blasphemed the Holy Spirit and everything. And so it's done a lot of damage. But for everyone, it's difficult. It's a difficult passage to understand. There are so many different interpretations of this passage. And and so we can't expect just to nail it and go, okay, here it is. But I want to just spend a few minutes digging into it a little bit, and I'll at least kind of tell you what the major views are in terms of what this passage is talking about. Let's read it first, and you'll probably see the problem. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away... It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Here's the problem. He's talking about people who have, and his description of them is that they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. So these people who have done all of that, and he's saying they can fall away. Now, that presents a problem in and of itself. And it brings up the question, it brings up the issue, can you be a Christian and then later not be a Christian? Can you have eternal life and then lose it? You hear a lot of times the way this question is stated is, do you believe in once saved, always saved? The Calvinists express it as perseverance of the saints, but it goes way beyond, you're probably somewhat familiar with the fact that there are two polarized positions that deal with this kind of an issue and several others as well, and it's the Calvinists on the one hand and the Arminians on the other hand. And in a nutshell today, although it is not expressed by their expressed doctrine, but in a nutshell today, Calvinists tend to be the people who say, once you're saved, you're always saved. Go forward, pray a prayer, accept Jesus. There's no way you can lose your salvation. Arminianists, on the other hand, are those who say you can get saved and you can get lost again and then you can get saved again and you can get lost again and then get saved again and then get lost again. And Arminian, Arminianists, sometimes they'll get saved every week. Pastor Chuck grew up in a, in a church, the Foursquare Church, that's very Arminian. And you'd just repent, you know, on Sunday, but by Saturday night, you'd lose your salvation again. You'd repent all over again. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the distinctions and differences between Calvinists and Arminians tonight. I don't want to do that. One of these days, maybe I'll just do a thing on the five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism, but I know most of you really don't care. Here's the problem. I mean, you have really good people on both sides. You have, you know, Calvinists like John MacArthur, who's, a, who's really a good man and, and loves God. You have Arminians really in the extreme, like Raul Reese, for instance, who believes save, lost, save, lost, save, lost all the time. Even within the Calvary chapels, you have people who believe absolutely eternal security. You, like Brian Broderson, I think, is real strong in that way. And you have Rawl, who's absolutely not. You can lose your salvation many, many times. Now, whichever one of those, those views you want to take, Hebrews 6 presents a problem. And it's difficult to get around. And that's why this passage is so difficult. Typically, there are passages of Scripture that either make you think the Calvinists are right or that make you think the Arminianists are right. And so if you go, you know, Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You go, boy, that's a great Calvinistic verse. But then you see he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you go, uh-oh, that's a big problem for Calvinists. You see that, that he says, you can't come to me unless I draw you. The Calvinists go, yeah. 
You see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And a Calvinist goes, oh no. The Armenian goes, yeah, that's great. The truth is, by the way, historically, Calvinism did not promote what, what you'd call once saved, always saved in the way that most Baptists do today. And, and John Calvin would have never gone along with the idea that says that, hey, if you accept Jesus Christ, then you don't ever have to worry. Because that's why Calvinism uses the phrase perseverance of the saints. The position of John Calvin was ultimately that you'll find out whether or not you're saved or not by whether you last. That's a little bit different than the once saved, always saved doctrine, the way it's usually explained. The truth is, Jacobus Arminianus did not believe that you could lose your salvation. And that surprises a lot of people. But if you, if you read the writings of Arminius, and even in the five points of Arminianism, the, the fifth point said, it, the question was asked, so can you be saved and then lost? And Arminius said, we don't know. And that surprises a lot of people because there are people who just think you can come in and out all you want. But here's the problem when it comes to Hebrews 6. The Calvinist reads it and says, you know, oh, it's talking about falling away. The Arminianist reads it and says, yeah, it's talking about falling away. But here's the problem. For the Calvinist, the problem is obvious. It sounds like you can fall away. And the Calvinist would say you can't do that. But for the Arminianist, then you have to read it and it says, if you fall away, it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. And I think this passage is a greater problem for an Arminianist than it is for a Calvinist even, because although it, it, it confutes and refutes both of them, but very few people have the idea that would say, yeah, I'm Arminian, I think you can be saved and then lost, but then you're dead, you're sunk. I mean, that would, it, it wouldn't be easy to pitch that in like some of the churches that are strongly Arminian, the assemblies in the Foursquare and different churches, the Methodists, um, the Wesleyans, and all, all these people who are Arminians who believe you can lose your salvation, they don't believe that if you lose it once, you're done, your history. And so it's a problem. What does it mean that it's impossible to be renewed to repentance? And what does it mean to fall away? Now, just to remind you of some of the basic truths of Christianity and some of the basic chapters that are important in this debate about eternal security, and again, I, I wish we had more time to really develop it, but I'm going to try to whet your appetite for it, and then if you want, you can do some more reading on your own and praying and studying. It comes up again and again and again throughout the scriptures. John chapter 10, Jesus said, he makes the statement, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. He goes on to say, nobody can pluck them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now that clearly says, Jesus Christ himself speaking, that if you're in his hand, what can, what can take you out? Then you go to Romans 8, where Paul talks about, and he says, you know, it talks about who will bring a charge against God's elect. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? That nothing, he goes on to say, that, that you know, no principalities, powers, high steps, any created being is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So if you read John 10 and you read Romans 8, you go, eternal security, baby. I mean, this is it. This is really clear. But at the same time, there are passages of Scripture, like Jesus himself talking in John chapter 15, where he continues to say, if you abide in me, here's what's going to happen. But any branch who doesn't abide in me, they'll be thrown into the fire and burned up. And you go, what's thrown in the fire and burned up? It sounds like there was a branch that was in him, and now it's not. And now it's taken away. And you go, what does that mean? And so Pastor Chuck will say, I believe that I am eternally secure, he says. And if you abide in the vine, then you're eternally secure. But again, going, yeah, but what does it mean to not abide what does it mean to, you know, no one can take you out of his hand, but can you jump out of his hand? 
And then that brings in a whole different set of problems. And again, I'm not going to solve it for you tonight. I, I can't. But the whole issue is biblically. And, and really, the way that I can, I'll just give you a little you know, hint of how I deal with that in terms of eternal security. And we talked about it a little bit last week. If you, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them. Now, if you have something that's eternal, how long does it last? Forever, right? So if you have something and it ends, whatever you had, was it eternal? No, of course not. You know, I, it, would be like, it would be like saying, you know, I used to have a bowl of food at home and it was the most amazing thing macaroni and cheese and it never ran out it just you ate the macaroni and cheese and more macaroni and cheese came back and it just went on forever and you'd go well really can we come over and see it maybe we can come over and have some macaroni and cheese no I ate it all well then it didn't go on and on forever it ended at some point you know you can't say I used to be eternal but I'm not now and so and again in first John chapter 2 John talks about this and referring to some false prophets and different things. And he says, they went out from among us because they weren't really of us. They left in order to show, well, I can quote it to you, but you need to see it yourself. Because every time I quote this passage, people go, what? They went out from among us because they weren't really of us. They would have stayed with us. They went out in order to demonstrate they weren't really of us. But turn over to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. And he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. So John is saying, and that's basically what the doctrine of perseverance of the saints says. It can be taken too far. But it's basically the idea that If you really last, then you show that you had eternal life. But if you fall away, then you're demonstrating that whatever you had wasn't eternal. Now, we can know that we have eternal life. You don't have to stick around and see it. John said in 1 John 5, these are written that you would know that you have eternal life. So I believe that I can know that I have eternal life. I believe not only that I'm saved... I believe that I'm always going to be saved. I don't believe that it's even possible for me to lose my salvation because I know that I have eternal life. But I also know I am going to abide in the vine. I also know there's no way in the world. Why would I want out of my salvation? But there are some people who want out. And I think that it's, it's a mistake to say, look, don't worry. You're a Christian, and no matter what you do, you're going to be saved. I had a friend who was a pastor at Calvary Costa Mesa at one point who was a very strong Calvinist. And I said, let's say someone goes forward at a Billy Graham crusade, prays the prayer. They really mean it. But the next day, they just keep living the way they were always living. They're a murderer. They continue killing people every day. They're living in an adulterous relationship. They just keep doing it for the rest of their life. 30 years, there's no fruit. There's not one thing that you see in their life that would even make them look like a Christian. I said, are you telling me that person's going to heaven? And he said, absolutely. But most of us would look at that person and go, obviously, you're not saved. You'll know them by their fruits. But if you hang on to an extreme position, then you're stuck with that kind of a ridiculous idea. The fact is, however you define it, if you argue eternal security or not, there are obviously people who can seem to all the world like they're saved, And then later, they're obviously not. You remember Jesus talking about this, said, you know, there are going to be people who come to me in the last days and say, hey, Jesus, remember me? I did miracles in your name. I served you. I was one of your greatest pastors. And Jesus said to him, what? Depart from me for I don't know you anymore. No, he says, I never knew you. And that's kind of frightening because there are people who even have the fruit, who from every indication, it looks like they're a Christian. They thought they were, probably everyone else did. But somehow, on some level, Jesus says, I never knew you. 
What does that mean? I don't know, but I probably have you so confused now that, you know, we've covered it. But now, in this passage, there's a question, okay? These people who've tasted the heavenly gift powers of the age to come and so on. Are they Christians or aren't they? Because it affects our interpretation of the passage and our theology greatly, depending on if they're Christians or not. Some people argue that they are definitely Christians, and I think you have to say, on the surface, when you say that someone's been enlightened, when you say that someone's tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, you'd think they sound like Christians. And I'd say probably most scholars who comment on this passage would take the position that these are Christians. And some of them say that it's possible for them to fall away, and some of them say this isn't really a possibility. There are all sorts of approaches, but it's a question as to whether they're saved or not. If you look at those words, especially in the Greek, but even in the English, most of them are words that don't sound like they're completely committed. They kind of sound partial. You know, even with the English words, and it comes across more in the Greek, but when you talk about tasting the heavenly gift and partakers having part, you know, being enlightened, tasting the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. It's possible, and a lot of people take the position, that these are people who get excited about the Lord. They're like the seed that's thrown in the rocky soil, sprout up. They go to a prophecy conference, hear about the rapture. They're all excited. Yeah, the powers of the age to come. But never, their roots never sink down deep enough to where they really are the real thing, where they really are able to grow. They just get kind of blown away early on. And there are people who take that position. There are people who vehemently argue that this can't be the case. And one of the things that they will use to argue that is to say, yeah, tasted, tasted, tasted. But in the very next chapter, it says Jesus tasted death. And they would say, John Corson is one who says this. He says, Jesus completely died. So there's no way that that's anything less than being fully immersed into death. Now, the problem with that is Jesus did completely die. But one reason why it says he tasted death is he didn't stay dead very long. So I don't think that's a, a completely conclusive argument. And I, don't, and, and I honestly can't say for sure that, okay, these are Christians or they aren't Christians. I don't think there's a completely locked-tight case for either way. But there are some other things that we have to consider on this, too, because... There are some people who would who would take the interpretation, these are Christians, and it's possible for them to fall away. Others, these are Christians, it's obviously possible for Christians to fall away. Some people know you can't, so they can't be Christians. Now, there are other people who say this is a hypothetical thing. They're saying, if it were possible for a Christian to fall away, then it would be impossible for them to be renewed to repentance because they've already accepted the Lord, they've crucified Christ, put him to open shame and all. And so, you know, they would say, this, isn't, this can't happen, but it's a hypothetical case, saying, look, if that ever happened to you, if you ever did go back into Judaism and rejected, you know, the, the new covenant, well, there's nothing else for you. Now, this is probably a possibility, but I think it's unlikely, because why would you build a big warning over something that can't happen? Seems like he could have made an argument some other way or made it more clear this way. Now, there are still other people who say, oh, and by the way, the people who say that these people aren't saved, not only do they base that argument on, and they're saying they come really close, and we all know people who come to church, get into Christianity for a while, and then bail on it. I met a guy last night, I was praying with a guy at Calvary who um, really going through struggles in his life, and he's ready to hang up Christianity. And I just think, if you're, and in his case, it's because God hasn't given him a wife yet. I know other people who want to hang up Christianity because God did give them a wife, but that's a whole different problem. But I'm thinking, if you're going you're gonna to walk away from Christianity, you can't relate to that at all. But there are lots of people who get into it for the wrong reasons who want to get out of it as well. And the other thing that, that they will point out to defend this view is that later on where Paul says, in verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So what they're saying is, he's saying, as far as you guys that I'm talking to, this isn't going to happen because you're actually saved. And the things that accompany salvation 
are the things of which I see in your life. And that's not too bad. And that's a real possibility as well. There are, there are a lot of other angles to approach on this as well. J. Vernon McGee has kind of an interesting position where he says this isn't talking about salvation at all. It's talking about rewards. And so what he's saying is, and he does make a good point that the word for, for uh, you know, if you fall away, there in um, verse 6, that word doesn't, isn't the word normal word for apostasy. It's actually a word that just means to stumble and fall. The same word is used of Jesus in Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane when he fell. And so it isn't, you know, in the English it sounds like, oh, you've tasted this, you fall away. Not necessarily, and when you read that, that when you look for that word throughout the New Testament, you don't see a consistency that it's really talking about necessarily losing your salvation. So an interesting other twist where he doesn't have to commit himself. Still a lot of other commentators don't even deal with it. G. Campbell Morgan's commentary on Hebrews, he just skips over these verses, doesn't even talk about them. But we're not going to do that. Here's the, here's the basic point that I think we need to take from it. First of all, remember who he's talking to. And then some people take that and say, what he's talking to, it only applies to the Jews in those days if they would go back into Judaism, take a step back from their Christianity, and that's possible too. But these people are looking back and thinking about returning to that from which, whence they've come. And I think for all of us, that's a, that's a healthy warning. Because if you've come to Jesus... And then you just decide he's not the way. Well, how can you be renewed to repentance? The only way to come to him is to come to him. And so if you don't like the way he is saving you, the way he offers salvation, well, there's nothing else out there. There's nothing else, no other options that God has. Now, if these people were saved or weren't, if they turn away and go back to Judaism or if they turn away and go back to drugs or whatever it is that we came out of, what he's, what he's warning here is he's saying, look, make sure that you keep moving, make sure that you keep growing and maturing because if you don't pursue that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our high priest, there's nothing else out there for you. Like Peter said to Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so however you choose to interpret the passage, you know, I, I, I'm not going to just say absolutely here's the proper interpretation of it. But the point is, don't be fooled into thinking that because something good was happening in your life in the past, that you're automatically okay. We need to make sure that we're walking with God, that we're abiding in the vine. We should all be looking at our lives and saying, are there signs of repentance? Is there, is there a showing of fruit? Is this something that happens? And if you lose that, if, if you're allowed to just walk away, and, and I, I kinda, there's something inside me that believes that if you just decide that you don't want to be a Christian... I don't think God's going to force you to be a Christian. I don't think he's going to go, nope, sorry. Nothing else, nothing from the outside can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But don't be so naive to think that you can't change your mind yourself. I don't think God's taken away our power of choice at this point. We prove it by sinning every day. But, he, but get this also, please understand this. Don't believe that you've done something that's made it impossible for you to come back to God. Don't believe that you've committed a sin and now you're just stuck. It's impossible to be renewed to repentance and you've just, you've lost it. It's all over for you. That's not true. The only way that you can even care about your walk with God, the only way that you can even worry about losing your salvation is if you're saved. It's only the Holy Spirit inside us that convicts us in that way. And so if you're worried about losing your salvation, you haven't lost it. The people who lose it, if you can lose it, the people who have walked away from it, either who weren't actually saved or were, I don't care, you can take your choice on that, but people who now are not walking with Jesus Christ, they don't care. They don't worry about such things. And so when new Christians come to me crying and upset, I, and say, I think I lost my salvation. And you know, it says it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. That's absolutely false. There's no way in the world. If you want to be saved, you'll be saved. 
Anyone who comes to him, he says, I will in no wise cast out. You can never do anything in this life that's going to cause God to close the door on you. He will not do that. Every sin that you've ever dreamed of committing is nailed to the cross. And, and there's always a place for repentance for you. But if you decide you just don't want it, he's not going to force you. And in that case, as you harden your heart, as you make that decision, you may get to the point where you are so hard that it's just not going to happen. I know some people like that who I think may fit into this category. They've rejected Jesus Christ so soundly after knowing all about him, after to every appearance walking with him. that I, I think their heart is so hard, I don't think they can ever turn. But how do we know? We don't. So I pray that God will soften their heart. I pray that God will do that work in their lives. But for the rest of us, the message is very clear. That being immersed in Jesus Christ and having him represent you as your high priest is something that, boy, you'd never want to go anywhere without it. You'd never want to live without him. Why even argue and, and, and bicker over things like this? Because I want to be as close to him as I can. I don't want people to sit and someday wonder, I wonder if Dave Rolf is still really saved or if he's really backslidden. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. And you shouldn't either. Because the warning is clear here that certainly some people who at the very least have all appearances of being saved, it's possible for them to miss out big time on what God has for them. Okay, we'll pick up here next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your glorious salvation and for your intercession on our behalf. God, opening the path, making it possible for us to come boldly before the throne of grace. God, I pray that if there are people here tonight, or people who are listening on the internet or anywhere, Lord, if, if they're even flirting with the idea of turning their back on you, if they're even struggling with whether or not they really want a life in fellowship with you, Lord, I pray that those people, you would worry them and help them to know that there's a warning of danger that exists here in Hebrews 6. And just in case we don't interpret it correctly and it could be a lot worse than we think, but Lord, they want to stay abiding with you, as close to you, holding on to you, knowing that you're holding on to them. God, if there are people who have been struggling and always feeling inadequate and always feeling that maybe they've lost their salvation, Lord, assure them with the truth of your word, that you're holding them, that they're your child, that no one is able to remove them from your grip, from your protection. Nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, wherever it's necessary. Allow us to receive from your word and what we don't understand. I pray that we would tread lightly in our own lives and not even take a chance of putting ourselves in a position of jeopardy that you warned us about. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you would quicken it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Do you have a fast song, Rick? <laughs> it's late. <laughs> Oh